This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. For your support for the Untold Radio Network family of shows and join in on the conversation by using super stickers and super chats on YouTube. Got a question you want answered? Ask it live via a super chat and get real time responses from our shows, knowledgeable hosts and guests. Help keep the Untold Radio Network shows running strong. We need your support. Send your super chats and stickers now. Well, welcome to episode 43, ladies and gentlemen mm-hmm. of Down South Anomalies for the one and only Untold Radio Network. Of course, my name is Jay Katz, and with me is my beautiful wife, Aspasia. Hey, and before we start with our profound guest today, someone we've been trying, we've been working on, we've been dripping water on the head of to get onto <laughs> this program, and we are so excited because this gentleman is up there with John Mack Absolutely. and Richard Dolan, yeah. so centred, mm-hmm. has the most correct moral compass and is so calm in his approach to research it is profound that is shane ryan but before we start we must always say that we are broadcasting on stolen land yes we much appreciate and respect our indigenous culture it is the gadigal people of the eora nation and we are to acknowledge elders past present and emerging and why wouldn't you say yes And our guest tonight is a teacher, researcher, writer, lecturer, and he is a parliamentary public servant. He is the lead investigator for one of the most profound UFO cases 
in the world, just not the continent. Mm -hmm. It is one of the largest eyewitness cases to do with schoolyards that you could ever imagine. Mm -hmm. And we are really humbled and very grateful to have this gentleman with us. So welcome to uh, Down South Anomalies, Shane Ryan. Thank you. I feel like I can almost leave now. That was such a wonderful introduction. <laughs> Thank you so much, Aspasia and Jamie. And I'm coming to you from the lands of the Nunawal and the Nyambri peoples here in Canberra. And I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging as well. And I'm feeling pretty centred, pretty relaxed. I've got my Ukrainian vodka here masquerading, masquerading as Canberra water. That's just Canberra water, but anyway. So, okay. I love you for that statement. That statement is absolutely brilliantly profound. Um, gee whiz, I mean, what do you do as a parliamentary public servant? I'm sure lots of people would be very curious as to what that role is. Well, you know, when I was growing up in Shepherd and in northern Victoria, way back in the 1970s, I never really imagined that I'd end up Uh, living in Canberra and working in Australia's Parliament House. It didn't exist, of course, uh, in Canberra at that point, not new Parliament House. It Mm -hmm. was old Parliament House when I was a kid. And uh, uh, new Parliament House, of course, opened in Australia's bicentennial year in 1988. And I think I was probably still at uni at that point. But Mm -hmm. anyway, years later, I found myself, as some people sometimes do, ending up living in Canberra and uh, and uh, working at Parliament House, and I work in the area of education and visitor services. So mm-hmm. it's my job to be one of the happy, smiling, welcoming, lovely, friendly staff at Parliament. And we work with all of the, the visitors who come in, the literally hundreds and thousands of school children, the VIPs, well, everyone's a VIP, of course, but sometimes people are technically and officially VIPs in terms mm-hmm. of, visitors from embassies and overseas parliaments and uh, and the general public. And we try to inform and teach people, educate people about uh, parliament, how we do democracy in Australia, how the parliamentary processes work when they do work, which hopefully is most of the time. Um, and it's a privilege to, to work in such a place and to live in, in this beautiful city of Canberra. You must have met some astounding people. You know, that must be a very life-affirming job, especially when you've got children going into Parliament House. Mm-hmm. It'd be mm-hmm. so exciting. And you spoke before to us about the fact that you had done some teaching with children. So it's a really um, – your wife does as well. It's a really profound profession. It is very important. Oh, it is so important. Mm-hmm. You know, Shane, it, it's an odd thing – the Westall case, and I know you've probably said it a thousand times before, but for our audience that listening and viewing, I'll get you to run through the basics about that case. But when I was going to school at Artarman Public School, and I'm very curious if you've had any knowledge of this, there was an incident in my public school that only sort of triggered me years later into remembering And we had a couple of football fields adjacent to the schoolyard. It was lunchtime and all the children were running towards the paling fence. Now, I really became aware of the absolute devastatingly 
incredible case that Westall is when I saw Rosie Jones's mm-hmm. documentary. Of course, she contacted us before that because of our film collection that we've got to see if we had any footage. And I was aware that Bill had made mention of it in the Oz files. Mm-hmm. But it hit me so hard, that documentary, because it took me back to this moment where at lunchtime we all raced to those paling fence with the support beams. And we stood on the support beam and looked over and the in the adjacent field was this large white ball that we were told later was a weather balloon, but it was hovering way too low. And my memory... Way too long. <laughs> way too long. It was there for the entire lunchtime and was still there when we were all called back into class. Mm. And my memory is very blurred because it becomes a memory of a memory of a memory of a memory. And it didn't appear to be your ordinary weather balloon. It appeared to have some form of like window windows or portals. And I was confused about that to the point that it started me going to the library. Now, I must have been between 10, 11 years of age. It was coming to my final years of primary school. And when I started looking at UFO literature, it astounded me that this was not just a science fiction motif, that there were credentialed people throughout the world that were drawn to investigate this subject. And I think that was the moment that this subject became predominant in my life and led to a path of research and lecturing and speaking about it. Now, you you had actually mentioned you know, that incident at school to me when we first met. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't so it was like we met in late 80s, 89, 90. And, um, you know, one of the first things when we did start talking about, you know, UFOs, the subject of UFOs, you know, Jamie did recant that story to me about having seen something at the school, you know. But he, he always asked, every time he meets up with someone from his school days back then, he always asks them and, and nobody has ever. There was one person, one person in my late teenage years, yeah. but I can't even remember who that person was. Yeah, but it's just, yeah. And it, it's <laughs> not that it's troubled me, but it's your film, mm. Rosie Jones's astounding documentary, yeah. because yeah. I believe that is one of probably the most important ufological documentaries ever made. so beautifully done. And from an Australian childhood, the end of the baby boomers, I mean, just the animation Mm. takes you back there. Even if it's not about investigating this profound case, as a time capsule on life in Australia Mm. as an adolescent in the 60s, it is really touching. And I've spoken to many other people Film historians like Richard Kuypers, the only Australian variety journalist uh, who was the original producer of Margaret and David, he felt the same way. Mm. It took him straight back to his childhood and his youth at school. So I can't thank you and Rosie enough for an extraordinary experience and a brilliant documentary. And I believe that documentary was not easy. And just coming to the final point of my rant there, I'm astounded when I go up and look on, you know, ubiquitous sites like Wikipedia that there's no mention of you as a researcher when it comes to this case and there's not even a link to Rosie's documentary. Who wrote that then? 
Well, who are the gatekeepers of Wikipedia? <laughs> oh, we've got to find out sale. about Wikipedia. But I, I wanted to make that statement to you that that film, to me, will outlive us all. Oh, yeah. It has incredible resonance mm-hmm. and it is a fascinating time capsule on our lives. And just emotionally, that notion at school where you sort of, should I jump over the fence and really look at this or am I doing something wrong? And then that also the power of authority to tell you that you don't know what you saw, what you experienced. Mm. Have you ever been made aware of a case at our time in public school in the 60s? <laughs> well, I have now, and I'm absolutely yeah, like intrigued. Now. And, I'm, and, and I'm really interested to hear more about it. But uh, it's interesting because in the course of my research, since Westall 66, uh, a suburban UFO mystery, Rosie Jones documentary that you just talked about came out in 2010, I've been contacted by literally dozens and dozens and dozens of people with their own UFO sightings from over the years in Australia. And a good chunk of those have been school-based sightings. People contacting me and saying, I've seen something on TV or online about Westall, but did you know about this one? And of course, it's usually the case that I knew nothing about that one. And at the moment, I've actually got a list here of some of those schools, school sightings that people have talked to me about, have shared with me. And uh, it's 10 schools, not counting Westall, just in Victoria alone and four other schools in South Australia. And now one school in suburban Sydney and New South Wales called Artarman um, (laughs) that uh, people have mentioned to me and and. To varying degrees, I've tried to chase up information about some of those. There's one in particular that just came onto my desk in the last the month or so. Hmm? The what? Power's not plugged in. Oh, hang on. Yeah, no, just keep. Yeah, going. just keep going. What's happened? With- Is Jamie okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's just realised that our our is not plugged in properly. Is okay. it plugged in? And if we lose you, just hang there because we'll come okay. back. Okay. So Stay right here. Where is it? Have you got it? Got it now. Okay. Okay. Whoa. Oh, okay. Came oh, that bright. Was scary. That was scary. We we did that once another time. Our it wasn't the PowerPoint wasn't plugged in and Excuse me. we lost power. <laughs> it's given me a better hairstyle though, doing that out of sheer fear <laughs> okay. there of wow. losing you. I'm sorry about we were actually holding together our 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 palette then and it all fell to bits on us my apologies can we resume we go yep yep no it's a good analogy for human life and how we all are we're all just (laughs) hanging in there maybe just that's right (laughs) but i was saying that just in the last couple of months a new case has come onto my desk somebody contacted me saying um uh i've read about the westall case but do you know about this case Another case that happened in Melbourne, in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, at a place called Bennett's Wood in the suburb of Burwood, around the same time as Westall, 1966 or so, with so many elements in the story that are common to what happened at Westall, that it makes one wonder what on earth was going on in those years. Was there something objectively happening that people were seeing that links all of these different cases together? Or um, is it more a comment on the 
the subjects themselves, not the subjects in terms of what was being seen, but what was doing the seeing, what was mm -hmm. doing the looking. And of course, I'm talking about us, the people, the witnesses. And I like your comments about Rosie's documentary because, I mean, I'm in the documentary, obviously, and I'm one of the subjects of the film, but I didn't know what Rosie's documentary was going to be like until it was made. And then she she shared it with me before it was broadcast on TV in 2010. And I, like you, uh, I mean, in a way, the UFO subject is obviously the subject of that documentary, but it's almost tangential to the other subjects in that film, which are the time, the era, the way that society was working, the way that authority worked, the way that Melbourne, Australia looked in 1966, the music, the landscape, the, the vehicles. And when I saw Rosie Jones' finished film as well, it took me back as well to that era. And I have a really strong uh, interest in local history, Australian history. And for me very much, my whole research project around Westall has been very much a local history project. It's about that oral history, capturing that oral tradition before it's completely lost to the sands of time. And particularly with a UFO story, often very little of a UFO story is preserved. Very little is recorded in the newspaper or on TV. Nothing official is often findable about a UFO incident, but the, the, the real, the what's the word the flavor the tenor the mm -hmm. the um the really delicious elements of the story of course live in or live on in people's memories and that's why i find talking to people recording their memories recording their experiences their emotions their emotional reaction to what happened at the time their emotional reactions to it now that's really important stuff and i feel like i've been in a very privileged position to play a small part in 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 doing that well i don't think i think you're an extremely humble researcher and you're meticulous and integrious and i don't think that that documentary would have worked without both of you you carry and guide the listener and the viewer through mm. that film so calmly yeah. so patiently that no matter who you are or how you're approaching this subject you have to keep an open mind. One of the most yeah. astounding things for me is that it starts when you're speaking about your own children as a parent. Mm. And it's really important, you know, how do we judge the credibility of these stories? And nine times out of 10 in the public arena, it's based on supposedly the integrity of the witness. But I really believe that up there with all the technological gadgets of an F-18 Super Hornet pilot, that you couldn't get more honest witnesses than children. Mm. Now, people that haven't had children might not agree with that, <laughs> but children have no veneer. There's no reason for them to lie. They have extraordinary imaginations. But when they state something to you that has affected them emotionally, mm. nine times out of ten, they are telling you the truth. And these are not just single children witnesses. These are multiple witnesses mm. yeah. in their hundreds. Too many of them. And then backed up in the arena of authority. 
And authority, especially in the 60s, always had a tenure of fear mm. embraced around it. That's the way, that's the system we came from. And as you've stated in the documentary in that time, it was an extremely English-tempered Australian regime, which was yeah. very dry and very austere. Mm. So children, you know, are not going to be swayed to saying something that they don't know. But what I think you've done there is offering witnesses a sense of catharsis and confirmation. So it's more than a documentary to me. It is not just a brilliant time capsule. It is extraordinary therapy mm. where a community comes together to heal over something that's difficult to explain and has been ridiculed in the outside world. So congratulations to both of you. I don't think that documentary would have resonated if it was just one of you. I think it's in this, and I mean, she's a great documentary maker Absolutely. on the cult of the yeah. family and so many other mm. things she's done. Yeah. But you both yeah. seem to have found an extraordinary chemistry to tell the truth of this tale, this profound story. Thank you for saying that. I really appreciate those kind words. And, and uh, you know, Rosie Jones has a new film at the moment that's screening as part of the Melbourne International Film Festival called Abibi, the Butterfly Song where she's explored this interaction between an Australian music maker, musician, um, and a Papua New Guinean one. And it's screening at the moment in Melbourne as part of that festival. But Rosie has done so much beautiful work over the mm. years. You mentioned the cult of the family yeah. and uh, the Triangle Wars. Before she did Westall 66, she did my personal favourite, The Visions of Yanka Lilla, looking at this... Anglican church in country South Australia where the Anglican priests and parishioners discovered what they interpreted as a, a vision, an imprint of the mother of Jesus, Mary, on the wall above the altar in the church. And it was a wonderful telling of that story. You know, however you approach the reality mm. of, of the subject matter, it was a beautiful retelling of that story and the personalities involved. And I think, of course, Rosie did something similar with the Westall story. Mm. And, you know, uh, I don't know if people outside of the field of film and television would realise that being a documentarian is probably the most unrewarding yes. financially <laughs> and difficult yeah. uh, tapestry you could paint on in the world yeah. of film. And I believe it took Rosie quite a bit of time. When she phoned us, mm. it sounded like the production had actually been going on for quite a long time can you tell us what led up to it and the difficulties and how long that did take for that thing to actually be shot and completed well rosie first approached me it was back in 2005 i think from memory wow. mm -hmm. and what had happened was in 2005 i was having a bit of a one of my first of many midlife crises and i was in between um, jobs, I think, and I was studying at the time, and I was working on an idea of writing a book for kids, a book based on some sort of story that would be really appealing to young adults. And I remembered this story that I had heard about years before, that was the Westall Flying Saucer story. And uh, I thought, well, Maybe I'll look into that because I remember that it was a story that was based around two schools, had lots of kids as its protagonists, if you like, and had that sort of 
science fiction, mystery elements to it. And I thought it would be appealing to young adults. And so I started doing some research into the topic. I got some local media coverage in some local newspapers in and around Clayton in Melbourne, where Westall is located. And that led to people contacting me. And it eventually led to a rather large page three article in the Sunday Age newspaper in Melbourne, written by the science editor of all people. And it was his take on the story, my research into it. Rosie Jones, of course, being an avid reader of the age, saw the story, contacted me, flew up to Canberra from Melbourne. We actually met at the National Film and Sound Archive, surrounded by all that that wonderful history and heritage, the Art Deco building, the library there. And uh, we talked and she explored my interest in the story, what I knew about the story, why I was interested in it, what I wanted to do with it in terms of my research. She went back to Melbourne and a couple of weeks later contacted me and said, Shane, are you up for getting involved in the mad, crazy, um, cashless world of making a documentary? Mm. And she wanted me to know from the very beginning There'd be no money involved. I wouldn't be being paid. She didn't think she'd end up making any money. And I'm sure that's absolutely true. Yeah. And it ended up being this enormous four-year effort for her. And Mm. I guess a shoestring budget, borrowing money, as all filmmakers do, from various film funders, Victorian and Australian, and a lot of hard work and an enormous amount of time and effort on Rosie's part, personal effort. It involved people, you know, wonderful people like Peter Zakharov as the cinematographer, Mark Tarpey as the sound recordist, Carmel McAloon was the producer. And uh, Rosie, like me, got hooked onto the story. Mm. Obviously, the UFO element of the story, but the human elements of the story as we together met these witnesses, witness after witness after witness, very down-to-earth people who had had this profound experience as children or young adults. Some of the witnesses, of course, were young adults in their 20s, such as the science teacher, Andrew Greenwood, and some of the other people living locally around the schools. And Rosie, like me, I think very quickly realised that Whatever was the provenance behind what had happened at Westall, whatever the truth of it was, something had happened. Mm. And it was something quite unusual, beyond unusual, really. And that it was something that really had a lasting effect on many of the people who were there. And one of the elements that Rosie was interested in was one that I was personally interested in, was why that there had to be from the beginning and still now after all of these years, silence why there had Mm. to be a covering up of the story why there had to be a certain amount of pressure applied to the people who were there to keep what had happened at Westall at Westall and to not let it be known beyond the confines of that time and that place and that intrigued me it intrigued Rosie I guess I had enough Irishness in myself to really react against that and to want to get to the truth of what Mm. had happened and why it couldn't be talked about all these years later. 
You know, that's one of the odd issues here is I was astounded that this case had been silent for so many mm. years. In many ways, it's allegorous to Roswell and the fact that there were decades that went past when no one spoke about this mm. being so such a mass eyewitness case and affecting so many different demographics mm -hmm. in age and across the beams there with, you know, science teachers and, and all of a sudden this thing was silent till really that documentary and Rosie brought it back to life. You both brought it back to life again. And it's a really, really important case. And we're seeing people like James Fox now with the Ariel School case in Zimbabwe and just, and the incredible strength of the students against all odds. I mean, again, it, it says to me, like our soccer team last night, that no matter what, <laughs> You just keep pushing forward. Mm. And some of those young girls were so tenacious and pragmatic in the fact that they saw what they saw and no matter what was brought down on them, they weren't changing their story. No. That is so life-affirming. Yes. And I think picking up on that theme of the Matildas yes. in the FIFA Women's World Cup for the soccer and that terrible uh, uh, result that we all <laughs> saw last night, not really terrible because no, the Matildas no. had already because look where they've got heart. to yeah look where they've they had got already to. been victors but we would like to have beaten our old friends the english of course in the soccer but uh, it's a new beginning for women's soccer and mm -hmm. sport generally i think in australia and we've all loved watching that festival but um you know i think the matildas theme for me is the australian element as it relates to what happened at westall but sometimes I talk about the three R's when it comes to UFO stories. And what I mean is Roswell, Rendlesham and Rua, those three great cases from three different countries from different years, America, England, Zimbabwe. And they all continue into this very moment that we're sitting in now as enduring mysteries. Even yeah. after all of these years, with all the witnesses that were involved in those three cases, and those three cases are emblematic for lots of others, of course, thousands and thousands that have happened over the years. They still remain unsolved. They mm. still remain stubbornly mysterious. After all, even after all the energy and the time and the money and exposure that's gone into them. And Westall is quickly, I think, joining that league, if you like. Yes, yes. But as an Australian... I remember thinking when I started my research, I didn't want a UFO incident in Australia to end up like one of these others in these other countries like America or Britain or Zimbabwe or Canada. For me... What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Reflecting on it as an Australian, I wanted to think, no, if something like this happens in Australia, we are a society that's open enough, tolerant enough, honest enough, and casual enough and laid back enough that we would be able to get to the truth about something like this happening and that hopefully the Australian authorities, the Australian government, intelligence and military circles would also be open enough to actually enable someone like myself or someone else to get to the truth of the matter. Unfortunately, that hasn't yet happened. (laughs) So in that sense, Westall really has joined the league of all those yeah. other cases. And will it remain so forever? I hope not. Who knows? I think as a researcher, particularly in a field like UFOs, mm. you have to be the eternal optimist. You have to think that your efforts and the efforts of others is actually making, however incrementally, uh, it's making a difference. Mm. And that by chipping away, at whatever the stone is that we're chipping away at, eventually the stone will crack and crumble and we'll all discover the truth. And whatever the truth is at the end, we'll be able to cope with it, hopefully, one way hopefully. or the other. Yeah. I think in many ways you have already made an extraordinary impact. And that's like in the statements of myself to you today, we don't realise, you know, how much we've affected people's lives with a piece of media like this that can be cathartic Mm -hmm. and can actually help people. One of the reasons why we got involved, we we both had a therapeutic background working with people that have been heavily institutionalised, and I had an experimental band with people on the spectrum that couldn't play. We couldn't even turn their Casios on in their nursing homes, and I thought the only power I can give them is amplification and let's embrace surrealism and (laughs) no no one will question it. But it's that thing of being able to release. We all need to be able to release, especially something that troubles us. Mm. And we were shocked at, you know, the amount of post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic stress disorder from people that witness these things. Because how do you integrate this back into your day-to-day life? How do you live through an incident like Westfall and then Westall, excuse me, and then get up and go to school the next day? It's sort of your consensus reality has collapsed Mm. and it brings everything into question about what we're led to believe is the the three-dimensional world we live in. 
And before we go any further, I'm sorry about these bold statements, but I'm just so excited to be talking to you. Can I just get you to lay out what the Westall case was about? Because we do have some people in the States that watch our show. And and people listening to on audio, not video. So I'll just get you to do that, which you've probably done a thousand times before. You become the rock star of Westall. Just keep going back to your hits. (laughs) That's right. The best hits, favourite hits, the only hits. Well, look, I don't mind doing it at all because every time I I tell the story and retell the story and hopefully I do it in a way that's correct and fair and uh, I remind myself of the elements of the story as well and it helps me to remember all of those mm-hmm. parts of the story. And, of course, I do it in a way that's imperfect and I do it in a way that's not without errors because it's obviously a huge jigsaw puzzle. And my job as the researcher, as I see it, is to try to put those pieces of the puzzle together in a way that creates some sort of coherence, uh, but knowing that I will be always doing it in a way that's not perfect because of the role of memory and the passage of time. And, and we all have our biases and I'm no different from anybody else. However, something extraordinary actually did happen once upon a time in a place called Westall within the community of the suburb of Clayton South, which is about 21 kilometres southwest of the Melbourne Central Business District. And at that time, in 1966, Westall, and there's a lovely map of Melbourne, Mm -hmm. which was my home for a while when I moved from Shepparton to Melbourne to get a university, which is when I first really stumbled across the Westall story. Uh, But Westall at that point in time was very much on the edge of suburbia. It was partly urbanised, partly still very rural, lots of market gardens. Industry was just beginning to take place. Uh, The main residential areas of that suburb still hadn't been laid out. And there were two schools at the heart of Westall, a primary school called Westall State School, And next door, on the same block of land, but a different school, a secondary school called Westall High School. And on the 6th of April in 1966, which was the second last day of Term 1, so the very next day was going to be the last day of school for both schools, and then it was going to be the Easter holidays and Mm -hmm. the term break between Term 1 and Term 2, so about two weeks of holidays. But on that second last day, Uh, At around 10.15 in the morning, uh, two groups of kids were out on the playing field at Westall High School. Another group of kids were already on recess at the neighbouring primary school when something literally out of the blue flew into their lives, flew into their airspace. Mm -hmm. And a large number of the kids, of course, saw it. It was right in front of them. Many of the kids, not all, remember seeing three, what they described as flying saucers. And that's why I often refer to it as the flying saucer incident, because that's how it was described. That's how it was perceived. So one to three objects, supposedly, apparently solid, metallic looking, silver gray in color, like a bowl sitting on top of another bowl or saucer something of a dome or a protuberance on top of the upper part of that object, 
silent or virtually silent flying in and then doing the most amazing maneuvers in the sky uh, amazing in terms of angles of flight in terms of speed in terms of the lack of noise and visually astounding because the shape bore absolutely no resemblance to any known aircraft and these kids and the adults knew planes really well because the busiest airport in the southern hemisphere civil airport at that time was often referred to as the one near the school a place uh -huh. called Moorabbin airport and it was only about five or six kilometers away and the kids were constantly seeing small aircraft like um cessnas mm -hmm. or piper cubs doing their training runs over and around the sky above the schools so they knew planes well and they knew that what they were seeing these objects were nothing like those planes and uh, at some point many of the witnesses recall five what were obviously light aircraft like cessnas appearing and it looked as though the five light aircraft were trying to chase or track down these ufos and as the light aircraft will get close to the ufo the ufo would just fly away at great speed a lot of the witnesses talked about looking at the flying saucer as if it was in the sky at one point and then suddenly within a second or two was on the other side of the sky as if as if it had blinked off and blinked on again. Mm. That was how it looked to them. And doing all of these maneuvers, again, without any sound or very little sound that they could perceive. And again, looking at them visually, nothing about the objects appeared to have any attributes that you would normally associate with an aircraft. So there were no wings, there were no tails, there were no flaps, there were no engines or motors. There didn't appear to be windows. So basically the classic description given by so many people in so many places of a flying saucer. Okay, I think this is a bit of a shot from the film, isn't it? So this is actually a drawing that was done by the wonderful mm -hmm. researcher and friend of yours and mine, Bill Chalker. Mm, you can right, almost right, make yeah. out his initials down the bottom. Bill did this drawing as he was or after he talked with one of the witnesses who appeared in the documentary, mm -hmm. a witness called Victor, who himself was a very gifted artist at the time and still is today, and who drew drawings of what he had seen. And that right. particular drawing is Bill's interpretation of what Victor had described to him. And Victor was one of the students who had seen uh, two objects. He saw them up close. He jumped the wooden paling fence that was on the western boundary of the schools uh, where a lot of the kids had amassed and he remembers at least one teacher as well and he jumped up on top of the paling fence saw that there were these two objects that you saw in that picture mm -hmm. hovering just above the grass in the paddock next to the school there were some kids who had already jumped over the fence before victor did victor did the same and walked up to one of the objects and he wow. went to put his hand out to touch one and then he realized there was heat coming off the object and so he drew his hand back and then one of the objects rose up into the sky and flew away quite quickly 
and then the second object did the same. And as they did, he could see that there seemed to be some sort of rotating belt or structure that seemed to be rotating at the base of the objects that he could make out as they ascended. And then they flew down to an area called the Grange, which was an old farming area that at that point was quite fellow, was only being used for bushwalks and motorbike scrambles and cross-country runs. It's now, part of it is now a, a nature reserve. And that was where a large number of the kids at the schools saw at least one of the objects fly down behind the pine trees at the Grange and appeared to descend as if it was landing. And some of the kids took off. A large number of the kids actually took off from the high school, not from the primary school, jumped over the boundary fence, over the ditch, the irrigation channel or the sewerage channel that was at the back of the school in those days, across the dirt road, down the dirt lane through the market gardens, chasing their quarry because they'd visually seen the object go down. They knew the area quite well. They had a fair idea where it would be and off they went. Not many of the kids talk about getting down to the area where the object had seemed to land and find it there, but there were one or two who say that they did. And they give, of course, an amazing description of being, again, quite close to the object, one of the objects at least, as it was sitting virtually in front of them. They often talk about the kids who have this memory of seeing the object land. Now, they're not necessarily literally remembering that it was sitting on the ground, but as they looked at it, it was close enough to the ground that they imagined that it was either sitting on the ground or just hovering gently above it. And there are a few witnesses who have that amazing memory. And then after all of these events happened and the objects were seen to ascend and fly away at great speed, leaving those aircraft behind in their wake, flying off so quickly that it made the witnesses perceive the relationship between the flying saucers and the planes as if the planes were just sitting in midair, not moving because the flying saucers had such speed mm. that their, wow. their vanishing was so almost instantaneous. And then over the coming minutes, following minutes and hours, there was this response to the schools, to the Grange, by people in authority, uh, police, fire brigades, ambulance service, civil defense organization, and the military. And all of this happening, unlike most UFO cases, mm. in broad daylight around 10.15, mid-morning, going into the afternoon, in the suburbs of Australia's second largest city with literally hundreds of witnesses. Yep. So, so do you know, quite a story. Yeah, absolutely. Do you know if somebody rang all those um, organisations, like, you know, to 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 how come. How was their response yeah, time how, so well, quick? Well, how did they? Well, did did <clears throat> I don't know. I'm just trying to work out how they knew to go there and why. Why would That's they right. have gone there if they told everybody it was just weather balloons? That's right. <laughs> it's and a of bit course of an that's, overkill response, isn't it? <laughs> and that's and that's of course you know part of the intriguing element of yeah. the story yeah. is because 
unlike most UFO stories where there's no response mm. or the response happens, you know, days later, this response was, according to some of the witnesses, they remember the military turning up within a period of about 20 to 30 minutes. And so, for example, uh, a fellow called Paul, who was working as a market garden hand at the time, he'd been a kid, a student at Westall High School the previous year, but he'd left school and was now working for his neighbour who owned some of the market gardens at Westall. He was in one of those market gardens down adjacent to the Grange, helping his boss and another fellow co-worker pull up carrots mm -hmm. or getting them ready for market to take them to the Queen Victoria Market in Melbourne. And he witnessed this UFO, this strange flying saucer-shaped object coming down from the north, from the direction of the schools, descending towards the Grange. And as he watched it, it seemed to change from having an obvious solid shape and look to it to becoming more and more translucent, transparent, and eventually virtually turning into a gaseous form as it flew into the pine trees at the Grange. But as it flew into the trees, the trees didn't react. There was no movement. Cones, leaves didn't fall off. It literally went into the trees, didn't come out the other side and was gone. And within 20 to 30 minutes, as he remembers it, and of course the remembering of time is such a difficult thing. Mm -hmm. And you always have to take these things with a grain of salt. But within a time frame around 20 to 30 minutes, he remembers this small convoy of army vehicles turning up in the farm adjacent to his boss's market garden. A couple of lorries with canopies over the back, a couple of Land Rovers and these soldiers jumping out, a couple so of officers. Where, where would they have come from? Good question. <laughs> Moorabbin? No one knows. Marabin? Well, is there is well, there a, you know, a station where they, they would be stationed somewhere and a call would go out and then they'd have to drive over? Is there like a barracks or, a you know, it's like how, you know, Not if you really. can work so out. Were, yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's a UFO story, so nothing mm. makes sense, of course. Nothing yeah. fits together. <laughs> no, but no. There were army barracks in Melbourne, in the suburbs of Melbourne, in several suburbs, relatively mm -hmm. nearby. But right. all of those army barracks were actually army reserve barracks. They right. weren't permanent army right. barracks. Right. And so no one was particularly, not in numbers, stationed mm -hmm. at any of those barracks. Okay. So really the closest permanent mm. large army establishment at the time would have been somewhere like Victoria Barracks in the city. So right. again, about a, you know, probably something like a 45-minute drive from okay. Westall. Wow. So the fact that these vehicles and soldiers turned up so quickly lends, uh, I guess, leads one to believe that somehow something had been seen earlier than what yes. had happened at Westall. The word had gotten out. Mm -hmm. Either that or someone somewhere within the military was somehow tracking mm. what came down at Westall. Otherwise, it doesn't really make no, a lot of sense. sense. Especially Unless... when they said yeah, it was a weather balloon and so they don't dispatch a whole bunch of military people to go and what? 
check out a that's weather right. balloon, you know. That's, that's true. And hmm. unless, you know, unknown to us really as we look back at it now as researchers and historians, there was some sort of rapid intervention team that had been assembled for such a thing. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what responded that day. We don't have any evidence really for such a thing, not in no. Melbourne, not at that time. So that part of the story is still rather mysterious, of course. Mm-hmm. But for the witnesses who were there, like Paul and other witnesses who were at the school, who saw the military turning up in the street in front of the high school, coming onto the grounds of the school, um, walking up and down the corridors at the school, Incredible. the memory, the fact that they're, that those sort of people were there is it's not a matter of argument for them. They remember no. it so clearly. Yeah. And of course, for them, it was daunting and mm-hmm. it was and it was threatening and it was so unexpected. Lucky Land Casino asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah. That's that's just astounding. It resonates with me. I did a program for uh, Radio I in the 90s called To Catch a Flying Star. I went out to the Nullarbor on Mundrabilla. And, you know, the Knowles case out there of the family of four that were picked up off that air highway in that area, you know, it's been disputed many times. Lots of really good researchers have actually said, well, they hit a cattle ramp. And it's quite amazing to me that you can blow a tyre on the Nullarbor and within a very short amount of time, all of a sudden federal police appear <laughs> and federal police with American what, accents. To change the tyre? Yeah, it's just, <laughs> and it, it, credulity just sort of goes out the window mm. and you, you're left scratching your head because I've heard mm. people that I have respect for as researchers just go, you know what, I can tell you something, Shane, there is no cattle ramps out there that is the driest harshest land and there's no way you can graze cattle on it mm-hmm. and that that land is is covered in strychnine because you know back in the 1800s they were told that you can resolve your indigenous problem any way you wish you're out of sight out of mind so it's mm-hmm. not somewhere where you can graze cattle easily yeah, anyway. and so yeah, I mean, I shouldn't extrapolate too much on those points, but it's a point of frustration where you just go, something else is occurring here. Absolutely. And when we look at this map, I think the Grange, it's very oblique when I pulled this up, right. but we're sort of dead centre in there around the Grange. Now, Moorabbin Airport has been, you know, well, brought up many times and it features heavily in the Frederick the Valentich, Valentich case, case yeah. you know. So yeah. it's an interesting area. It's an area, again, and we might do this without much clarity, but you could deem as an area of strange, high strangeness and events like this are not, well, events like Westall are uncommon, but anomalous events in that area seem to be fairly ubiquitous at times. Mm. And especially mm. I've spoken to many truck drivers in that area, and these are tough people that, you know, are working really hard schedules, and there are certain truck stops they will not stop 
for the amount of anomalous experiences they have that might start off as a Min Min Light sighting and turn into a massive UFO encounter. Mm. Yes, absolutely. And as I mentioned earlier, since Westall came out as a documentary and the other PR that's been around the Westall story since then, of which there's been quite a bit on TV and newspapers and magazines and so on, I've been contacted by so many people with stories and lots of stories that come from even that part of Melbourne, eastern suburbs, southeastern suburbs, particularly in the days back in the 1950s, 1960s, when the place hadn't yet become as urbanised as it has now. And there were still lots of tracts of land where people would go bush bashing or ride scramble bikes or go for country drives and people would see things. And lots of people have contacted me over the years. But just to get back to Aspasia's question about how did people know about what had happened at Westall and respond mm -hmm. so quickly, one of the teachers who was at Westall High School at the time, she said to me, she was an English teacher at the time. She's since become quite a well-known uh, children's book author. And she doesn't have much time for the Westall story herself. She didn't see anything herself physically. Right. However, mm -hmm. she did tell me that a couple of the girls had come up to her who had seen something and they wanted to ring and tell the media about it. Oh. And she gave them, those two girls, permission to run down to the Westall shops and to make a phone call from the public phone booth. She couldn't, they couldn't, they couldn't do it from the school. They couldn't right. use the school phone. And so wow. off they went. They went down to the phone booth. I've seen the phone booth connection at the Westall shops. It's still there. And that's where apparently Channel 9 was called from. Because in those right. days, phone booths, well, first mm. of all, there were phone booths. Yeah, phone everywhere, booths everywhere. Telephone directories. And mm -hmm. you could look up the number for Channel 9 and yep. ring. And that's what they did. And I eventually tracked down one of those two girls, Eileen. And she confirmed, yeah, yeah, I was one of the kids who ran down to the phone booth and wow. rang Channel 9. And that's how Channel 9 responded quite quickly. But I, it took me years to realise that even though I knew from very early on the name of the journalist, the TV reporter and the cameraman, who did the story that went on the Channel 9 News that night in mm -hmm. Melbourne and read by that wonderful, famous newsreader, Sir Eric Pierce. All right, yes. I never, I never, and that film, that yeah. film from that news story is gone. It's gone. We can't find it. Rosie's looked for it. I've mm -hmm. looked for it. Channel yeah. 9 says they've we looked look, for it. We looked for it, actually, Rosie. about that. Yes. You were one of her last great hopes but no one seems to be down. able to find it. Well. But what I never knew was that there had been another cameraman, a Channel 9 cameraman, who had arrived there first, before the reporter and the other cameraman. And he had arrived there very quickly, and he had a camera. He lived nearby. He lived in the neighbouring suburb of Dingley, literally a 10-minute drive from Westall. He's still there today. And his wow. camera didn't have sound. So we only had film. Right. But he filmed enough. He filmed the kids oh, from wow. a distance. Mm -hmm. The school wouldn't let him talk to any of the students. But he remembered even after all of these years, the effect the kids were showing, mm -hmm. the effect on them emotionally, their reactions yeah. to what they had seen and experienced. And he got a feeling for how big a story this was 
breaking news, if you'd like, we'd call it now, I guess, that he rang up Channel 9, rang up his boss and said, please send out a crew, send out a reporter, send out a cameraman with sound. We need to cover this. Right. And uh, so it just goes to show, you know, you can spend years and years researching something and then still not have uncovered a really uh, important essential element or character Mm -hmm. piece Mm -hmm. of the jigsaw to the story, like the original Channel 9 cameraman, who after all these years had never come forward, had never made contact with me, but still had these amazing memories of what he had filmed and seen as a very young cameraman. So what did you do with his film? What happened to his film? film? It formed part of the news story that night. Right. So it formed part of the the visual story. The other story, the other film with sound was later added and it aired on the news that night. Right. But uh, we don't know where it is now. The film's gone. Yeah. And, and there wasn't uh, there at some stage, and we, we knew David Lyle in there that was running Channel 9 for he was, a while. Was he 9 or 10? Yeah, and yeah. no, it was 9. Yeah. And and uh, wasn't there a story that they actually came across the can, but the film was missing? There was a search done in the archives. Um, now, I can't remember now whether it was the Channel 9 Archive Library in Melbourne or in Sydney. Right. Uh, because sometimes film would go from yeah. one to yes, the that's other. Right. And uh, so I literally can't at the very moment, my computer's not working properly. I can't remember this computer, I mean. I can't remember which archive it was, but one of them was searched. A canister was found which had labelling on it that referenced the Westall story, mm-hmm. but it was empty. And mm-hmm. there had been a story that had floated around for years, mm-hmm. and I still really don't know what the genesis of the rumour, if you like, or the story was that the then owner of Channel 9, Frank Packer, so Frank Packer, the father of Kerry Packer, of course, had Mm. asked for the film, demanded that the film be sent up to Sydney from Melbourne, and that that had been demanded on the request of a federal government minister through Sir Frank Packer. And then from there, the film was then passed on to somebody or somewhere Mm-hmm. And um, Ross Coulthard, of course, who's had a, a very long interest in the Westall story for a long time and has done a few things in relation to UFOs, you may have noticed, over mm-hmm. the last few years. <laughs> yes, he, especially right now. <laughs> and, of course, included the Westall story in his wonderful book, In Plain, Plain Sight, mm-hmm. and uh, is a great friend of the Westall story and, and has become a friend of the Westall witnesses as well. Uh, he contacted the Packer family. And, of course, he has some contacts with them through his previous roles with Channel 9, through um, 60 Minutes and so on, and The Current Affair. And, unfortunately, none of the surviving members of the Packer family had any memories of that story or what might have happened. So mm-hmm. if it ever did happen in that way, it must have been kept very quiet. Yeah, I'd say so. It's ever, it could have, you know, there's there's so many things that you can assume, but my wife and I are film historians and we've given back to the ABC more lost television than just about anyone in the country. Yeah. And, you know, we know that out there in that grey world oh, yeah. of the underground film collector that they have turned into, and the BBC's Doctor Who will actually, you know, tell you the truth about that. They have turned into the greatest, the world's greatest archaeologists, archivists yeah, too. So <laughs> yeah. I always, like yourself, hold out hope that something like that could just reappear one Might day. Might be in somebody's 
you know, collection. Private collection. Because a lot of a lot of that stuff from television stations back in the day, they used to be sent to the furnace because they didn't have the room to, to and hold. copyright. Yeah. And copyright. But they but you know, news stories, their own news stories. I mean, that's a lot of footage to to hold on to. You can't store it all. So they used to send it to the furnace, but the the uh sixteen millimeter uh, film buffs would know. circumvent. Yes, they would. They moments. knew all the guys that drove those trucks, and they would pay them, and they would they would not send them to the furnace. They would sell them to these guys, and this is how a lot of our uh, you know television culture has survived because of those people. Otherwise, it would have all been burnt and we would have nothing. We have a 16mm print here of an extraordinary documentary that Roger Clipson did in 1975 Mm. on Channel 7 that has some remarkable first-hand witness cases here in Sydney Mm. and the greater Australia. One day we'll have to sit down and and show you that. Believe it or not, I no, think. No, fact or fiction. Or fact or fiction. UFOs, Thank fact you. or fiction, it's called. Here's my hard drive. There's <laughs> my no, wife. There's actually no other print <laughs> of this. There's no other copy of this film. We're aware of it's it. It's like right. a 50-minute, like a television hour. Now, listen, well, Kevin you know, Arnett, you'd remember the wonderful Kevin Arnett. That's who, who it, was Kevin on... Arnett was the guy. Wow. Oh. He, was, he was the, uh, he used to, I used to see him on, Don Lane. He used to go Don on Lane Don Lane show, show and he used to always um, do stories that on on you know UFOs Doris and ghosts. Yeah, and he was like the he was like a par- television. That's the right. That was his name, Kevin Arnett. Yes. Wow, you've triggered a great memory for us there. <laughs> I was, we were trying to think of I was trying to think of his name the other day and I just couldn't think of it. Can you just go down to that little news story there? Because I'm just showing you a case that uh, this Bill Chalker has spoken about extensively. But this was two days before Westell, wasn't it? What's that? Right. Yeah, the headlights being bent. Where at? Burke's flat. Oh, right. Okay. Got it. Oh, right. There it is up there. So that was the famous Burke's flat case from Uh uh, Victoria, Central Victoria, the 4th of April, 1966. So, yes, just two days before the Westall incident. And okay. the main witness in that case, a lovely fellow called Ron Sullivan, was actually included in Rosie Jones' Westall 66 documentary because of the, the timing. Obviously, it happened in the same week, so close to what had happened at Westall. Um, and Ron's now, unfortunately, passed away. But uh, Ben Hurl from... The Victorian, formerly the Victorian UFO Action Group, uh, and now UFO Vic. He, uh, along with the Victorian UFO Action people, have done recently over recent years a wonderful revisit and retelling of that bent headlights at Burke's Flat story. Uh, and so there was, of course, you talk to wonderful researchers who have been at this for such a long time, like yourselves, and Keith Basterfield and Bill Chalker mm-hmm. and others who remember that, you know, the years around 1966 were were quite a, a flap years. There were so many things happening. There were the famous Tully cases up in yep. North Queensland around Uramo and Tully. There was, of course, the taking of the Polaroid photograph, the controversial Polaroid photograph in Deep Dean in Baldwin in Melbourne by uh, James Kibble. That was just, um, that was on the 2nd of April, 1966. 
so many things happened around that time. And uh, Westall was, was part of that, of course. But because of the numbers involved at Westall, Westall really stands out as such an unusual case. Mm. And the connection with television is so interesting for me because uh, I've spoke to uh, that recently found first Channel 9 cameraman, Ray, the, orig- uh, the other cameraman that I'd known about for such a long time, and the journalist, a very well-known journalist for Channel 9 called Gordon Lead, who started off his career in Melbourne and then moved a year or two later to Channel 9 in Perth. And I spoke to both of those men and they both had clear memories of what had happened at wow. Westall, the stories that they had covered as young reporters and camera operators. Mm-hmm. But they both said to me when I raised the issue of what on earth has happened to the film, where did it go? And they didn't tend necessarily towards the conspiratorial because they said to me so often, as you've mentioned, mm-hmm. so much stuff just got thrown out. And at Channel 9 in Melbourne, unfortunately, in I think it was the 1980s, there was an enormous flood that happened at Channel 9 Studios in Richmond that took out a big chunk of their archive. Stuff just got ruined. And it's Mm. possible. Mm -hmm. It's possible that that's what happened to the Westall film. But I live in hope, of course, that somehow something survived because Kevin Arnett, years later, did a segment on Westall and mm-hmm. interviewed one of the original witnesses, Marilyn Eastwood, who was the young girl featured on the front page of the Dandenong Journal local newspaper at the time in April 1966. She was a primary witness. She was one of the kids who tried to give a media interview to the Channel 9 crew that arrived that afternoon and ended up getting detention for it. Wow, detention. Kevin Arnett interviewed her. And that apparently not only was filmed but aired, presumably on Channel 9. It may have been a segment on the Don Lane show, Mm. but now it can't be found. However, there are memories. Uh, Bill Chalker and I think George Simpson remember that uh, when Mike Willisey was hosting A Current Affair, he did a story on a UFO gathering that happened in Mount Gambia that I think happened around the same time as an eclipse that was happening over Australia. And a couple of people like Bill and George remember some of that original Channel 9 Westall footage from 1966 being spliced in to that later A Current Affair episode, but now that can't be found either. That, That gives hope, though, and that makes me think that in those days too, uh, they would always make safety prints, two or three safety mm, prints of mm. something, even a news story, just in case something happened because film were, was brittle and you're kinescoping yeah. this stuff. Yeah. So the possibility of it being still out there is quite in astounding. Someone's, in someone's um, I mean, we, we un- private stash. We uncovered, and I think we can just let it out, the cat out of the bag. I mean, a lot of that ABC archival material we found underneath oh, yeah. Abdul's yeah. on Cleveland Street <laughs> by a little boutique company that was renting to the public. The Home the, Talkie. The Home Talkie Company. And when that all came to an end and people who were involved with that, I think they worked out that maybe Dad or the grandfather the, the, yeah, the father, had been yeah. circumventing the truck with a slab of beer. Yeah, And from instead the of it going to the furnace, it all went down there and it was buried underneath the road. And so I was driving right. Mission Beat then <laughs> and I actually 
in my lunch break between picking up street affected homeless people, I would be, I can remember getting a couple of homeless people in the van and it was covered in film reels. And I'm going, you just have to deal with this. Just hold on tight to those film reels. <laughs> so we were pulling things out from there. So it can end up in the wildest places. Yeah, absolutely. That gives me incredible hope. And, you know, we will be heat-seeking missiles and keep an eye out ourselves now that we've reached this point. Can I just ask you, Shane, um, when when you started, you and Rosie started the documentary, did you make, put a call out for people to come forward um, to be interviewed about Westall or how did you get on to all those witnesses? That's right. So even before Rosie made contact with me, I had started mm-hmm. that process, of course, right. and had already amassed a reasonable number of witnesses and that was through the yeah, mouth, if you like. Did you have Yahoo a Yahoo group, group really early? Right. Yeah, yeah, before social media like Facebook, of course. Yeah. So I did Yahoo groups and uh, because that's all that was available. For me, it was very much a learning process. I was putting these feelers out into cyberspace and trying to see if anybody would pick up on the story. And people did. But, you know, it was the local newspapers. It was mm-hmm. that article in the Sunday Age, right. which led to the, the number of witnesses sort of slowly mushrooming, if you like from two to four to eight and 12 and 15 and that sort of thing. And then I organized a reunion, the very first reunion of Westall witnesses in 2006 for the anniversary of the incident. Mm -hmm. And we had that at the Westall Tennis Club Hall down by the Grange in Westall. And I had some local people help me. And one of the most amazing helpers was a man who at that point, I guess, was in his 70s, who had lived in Westall all his life Mm -hmm. and who had a couple of kids who'd been at Westall State School as primary school kids at the time and who had come home with the story. And he was so intrigued by not only the elements of the story but the effect it had on his two kids that he decided to go down a couple of days later to where apparently... The flying saucer had come down at the Grange and he took a mental note of where he was standing and where he saw this huge circle of flattened grass. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. At the Grange and the two huge high-tension power pylons that he could see closer to the schools from where he was standing. And he Mm -hmm. made that mental note just in case in years to come, he would need to tell people where it was that he was standing that day. And so when we filmed him for Westall 66, that's what he did. 
and he took us back to the actual spot as close as he could make it mm -hmm. obviously the landscape had changed quite a lot over the years but he used that memory of where he had gone that day and what his kids had told him and so norm was his name he's since gone to god unfortunately but mm -hmm. he was such a great help to me to getting that reunion up and running and uh, and getting the hall as a location and norm bless his heart had actually written a letter to Kevin Arnett, back to oh, Kevin Arnett, wow. who at that point in time had a column in the New Idea magazine. Mm -hmm. okay. And the column was always asking for contributions. Do you have any stories about strange things? Ghosts, yowie, UFOs. And Kevin Arnett wrote in and he had, and he kept the letter that he sent to Kevin Arnett. And it's this beautiful two-page document of what wow. his memory was of what had happened at Westall, what his kids had told him, and asking Kevin Arnett if he would consider taking it up as a story. Now, he didn't ever get a response except one that said, thank you very much. Nothing became of it that he was aware of, except very that we later Kevin. found out that Kevin Arnett did do a story with one of the witnesses. Right. So all of these wonderful connections. But that... Mm -hmm original first reunion in 2006 was the first of several that would happen and that would eventually gather more and more people uh, and raise the the um raise in people's consciousness the fact that this strange event had happened and that mm -hmm. it was okay if people wanted to to talk about it now right how many witnesses at the end of the day do you attribute to this event well, Jamie, I'm glad you've asked me that question because right next to me I have this wonderful um, set of cheat notes, which is um, a document which I have, which I uh, um, annotate every now and again mm -hmm. because I have to update it with the number of witnesses because I, I tend to get a new witness or a contact these days after all these years, probably about one every two or three months. Wow. But wow. at the moment... I've got 136 witnesses who were witnesses to the flying saucer or wow. flying saucers. Incredible. Of that 136, 22 remember seeing more than one. And most of those 22 say there were three that they very adamant about that they saw. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, 185 who saw the circle or circles that were left behind. And there's a lucky number of 76, a subset number of 76 people who saw both the flying saucer and the circle or the trace right. marks left behind. Mm -hmm. And I know from the records, the official records, that there were about 485 students at Westall High School at the time. And I've been in touch now with about 226 of those mm -hmm. kids. And so almost half. And so I'm very conscious that there's a whole cohort, maybe another 250 people who were at the high school still not mentioning forward. the ones i haven't contacted at the mm -hmm. state school and i've been in touch with 57 of those primary school kids mm -hmm. but there's still a big chunk of both of those cohorts i've not been in touch with and i and i just know that there's a whole lot of other stories out there there'll be people who remember it differently who won't remember it at all and there'll yeah. be people who have other aspects possibly quite important aspects to the story that mm -hmm. no one has yet heard. And even though the vast majority of people I've been in contact with have been very gracious, 
have very been very patient and have been very cooperative and and almost going beyond that they say to me shane i'm so glad you've contacted me because at the time we were told not to talk about this mm. yeah. they asked me is it okay for me to talk about this now or they'll say i've tried talking about this over the years but i get shut down even people within my own family or work colleagues just you know look at me strangely when i try to tell them what i saw at westall that day but there are some people not many but there are some people who don't respond and there's another smaller cohort of people who respond who respond but for them they don't want to talk about it very much there's right. an element of the story whatever it is whether it's fear or a sense of ridicule or something traumatic perhaps and they don't want to go very far into it and so like with human beings anywhere like with any group of witnesses it's a real mixed bag sure well what you've done is an incredible community service and an extraordinary historical service and for the world of people researching the anomalous which is made up by a large number of people who've experienced a glimpse of another perception of reality mm. This is a profound service that touches lives and and gives people a sense that they weren't going mad. They no. genuinely experienced something. And, you know, this, this story should be a massive worldwide story. In many ways, a story like this could turn consensus reality around. And one of the people at the time that fascinates me that you brought into that documentary with extremely high credentials. One of the leading uh, astrophysicists of the time mm. was James McDonald, a very straightforward, extraordinary human being. And Drewful has done a great service in putting this book out, Firestorm, who fought against such opposition to actually looking into this phenomena from a scientific perspective. Yeah. And look, this is not going to last long, I don't think, but let's see if we can get a bit of this up. Thanks to Eyes on UFOs, Eyes on Cinema, mm -hmm. and you must know this 58-minute, there, there was a moment where he actually interviewed um, our science teacher virtually at the time. So let's just add that to the stream. Today, uh, a discussion with uh, Mr. Andrew Greenwood uh, in connection with the Westall sighting. So we'll just, uh, if you want to sit down here, and I'll sit over here. I need a little bit more light. That's a heck of a chair, but I guess we can sort of right here. I've, uh, I've read uh, some of the material that uh, Paul and Peter have sent me, uh, so I know a bit about it, but uh, I think it's well to just go you know i'm going to remove it from there because people can go to the site on put, youtube i'll put, I'll the put link a link up. to it and we people need, to, we need to put a link up to westall as well it's because, on youtube no no, still, no rosie is still selling um, right, the okay. dvds out there with yep. extended footage i believe shane yep. is that right yep. yep that's right 30 minutes of extra footage in a video okay. book mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. there's also a couple of study guides that yep. were developed by the Australian Teachers of Media to mm -hmm. accompany the documentary. And, so we'll and the documentary link. can be can be rented, can be hired, or can be purchased, yeah. can be yeah. streamed yeah. as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, but make sure 
if you're interested in this topic, oh, yeah, have you a look at, support it's an the filmmaker. It's not yeah. just me having a look. No. Because yeah. I don't know there's a lot of bootlegging out there yeah. and you can easily watch that, but you need to watch the extended version and you need to make sure that the filmmaker gets some little return. <laughs> Otherwise, on they're going to stop making documentaries. <laughs> balanced effort. Now, just digressing back to James E. McDonald mm -hmm. here, you know, the one thing that really strikes me odd is that, you know, that what is happening today in the media that we're all aware of and, and Ross behind our whistleblower, David Grush there, I mean, let's go back to 1967 when McDonald was out here, that he was supported financially by the Office of Naval Research mm. in the US mm -hmm. to study the UFO phenomena. It was not the reason he was out here but he was looking into atmospheric disturbances that could have led to, you know, the breakdown of the ozone layer there or whatever. But he was a highly credentialed individual. And I can remember, you've probably seen this as well, and I don't know whether it was with Bill Peach no, it was. from the ABC, that there was a reasonable interview, but right at the end, Disgraceful. McDonald leaves the studio and Bill Peach steps onto a supercar corner-operated ride and makes completely light of the situation, no, just, you know, which is really distressing that you've got someone of that incredible credentials. And I have to thank Rosie and both of you for including him in that documentary. Mm, There's an incredible archives out there of James that has now been sequestered into a library in the States. Look it up because his level of research absolutely. at that time is just astounding. Yeah, it's profound. And I think yeah. about Dr. James E. McDonald a lot because mm. I just imagine you know, how things might have been different now after all of these years if he'd survived, mm. if he hadn't yes. passed away not that long after he came to Australia in, in apparently tragic circumstances. And he was such a gifted man. And, you know, obviously like anybody, he had his flaws and his troubles, but he brought the most energy, the most incredible energy and level of commitment and smarts, intelligence mm. to this subject. And he just wanted to tackle it scientifically in the same way that any other question would be tackled by science. He wanted to do it in a very, um, a very proper, sincere, but open way and to get away from that ridicule, get away from the stigma and say, this is an issue. It's something that's happening in the real world. It's involving real people. Let's study it like we would study mm. anything else. Absolutely. And just like yourself, he had a very calm and clear approach to things. He was a true gentleman, and you can hear that in his interview, just an incredibly inquiring mind. And I get a feeling that they were just getting worried that this gentleman brought so much credentials and information into the public light that things were just getting a little dodgy. Now, can we go up to our moving or go down to our yes, moving bits and pieces? Yeah. You know, it's very – how do you feel about what is occurring just briefly, Shane, in the media right now with – Ross Coulter and our um, Leslie Keane oh and, and all that stuff around yeah. David Grosh. And, and, you know, from our perspective as, as being therapists and dealing with people with addiction issues and, and all sorts of other baggage on board, in light of what's come up with our sort of 
uh, journalist out of the intercept there, Ken Klippenstein. I'm, go- I'm going to get that wrong, that name wrong. I actually went into complete shock over that because I heard an interview with John Greenwald Jr. of the Black Vaults, which you'd be aware of him with the, his incredibly clear-centred individual. And in that, Ken just at one point said, well, the guy was a drunk and he had mental issues. And look, you know, people who suffer, I mean, he had many uh, tenures out there in the battlefield and, you know, post-traumatic stress, post-traumatic stress disorder, these, I mean, these people are veterans and they're going to suffer incredible moments that traumatise them. And I bet you, Ken, our journalist from The Intercept, has had a few nights on the ether as well and been drunk (laughs) before. And, you know... You can't define somebody by a moment in And you can't define people by self-medicating either. Mm. And it doesn't mean what they're saying is wrong whatsoever. I know, I know. So I'm really shocked at that approach that's taken on, whether it's a smear campaign or whether it's just a young journalist from a very edgy new online newspaper trying to get the inside scoop on the dirt on David there. But I also think that the last thing that needs to be brought up is the notion of people being on the spectrum and trauma that they'd suffered in life. Mm. And a lot of that conjecture sounds to me as if it's hearsay going from his wife's testimony to public police and medical records. And that's the wife opinion in a moment of stress in a family issue. And if people were honest, probably happens to the majority of us over the course of life, whether we've come from an incredible position that David's in or not. And the echoes with what happened to James McDonald all those years ago. Yes. You know, this very gifted academic professor, and he fronted up doing his job at a congressional hearing in Washington to talk about matters relating to his field of science, atmospheric physics. Mm-hmm. And he was ahead of his day in many ways, talking about the effect, the possible effect of, um, you know, of climate change and the effect of ozone in the atmosphere. But he was talking, you know, he was presenting at Congress when one of the congressmen brought up the issue of, but aren't you someone who's researching little green men? Yeah. And there were these peals of laughter and embarrassed silence. And and he got a lot of critique, of course, from some of the uh, more well-known debunkers who were around at the time. And he paid a very, very heavy price mm. for his academic, natural, very understandable curiosity of course. into this issue of UFOs. But these other, but but so all of that got conflated and his reputation was smeared. And apparently because of his personality, it would affect anyone, of course, Mm -hmm. he took that very much to heart and felt very offended by people who should have known better, people who were credentialed as other scientists Mm -hmm. or, or politicians, what we would call playing the man and not playing the ball. Yeah, And I see that exactly what's happened recently in relation to David Grush and this article in The Intercept because I didn't realise it was a crime to have an illness. To be I didn't human. I know that it was wrong to, to suffer be a human. mental illness or <laughs> yeah. any physical illness. And what on earth does that have to do with the information that he's coming forward well, that's with right. well, in you Congress? Know what? 
in this day and age, especially the way we we there's all these campaigns out there, especially aimed at men to talk about, you know, having having if they have a mental illness that it's okay. You know what I mean? That that it's 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 just a natural thing, yeah. and not to to uh, ridicule them and and make a, for a more um can you know, an environment where they can come out and be open about these things so they they don't internalise and then, you know, commit suicide, which is what happens a lot of the time mm-hmm. because they can't go anywhere and or they feel they can't speak about it. This person is is just, you know, set that back so far back, it's just ridiculous what he's doing. He yeah. actually should be wrapped over the knuckles for having done that. And yeah, I, and we I all struggle with mental illness, don't we? I mean, we all well, struggle with mental illness. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone, physical illness. Yes. To yes. a certain extent is on the spectrum. And I would debate the fact that post-traumatic stress or post-traumatic stress disorder is even on that spectrum of what we concur to be things like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. It is a natural reaction to be taken out of your environment and put into something that's so devastating, Mm. so frightening. And, you know, it used to be called shell shock. I mean, my grandfather came back after putting his age up in the First World War and had shell shock, became a great anti-war poet because of the tragedy of someone at his, at any age, yeah. experiencing the sight of people dying on the battlefield mm. next kids, to you. Kids, kids, because a know? lot of them were kids. And, and I think that, you know, there should be some respect for your veterans and some caution used because one day, Ken, someone will look into your background yeah. and pull up something that isn't that significant to you but can be played on in the sensationalist market of this news. Mm. And I think it's just a one way, to me, it's Ken getting his identity as that edgy journalist built up. It doesn't distract from David's testimony. And just like the courageous, and I emphasise that word extremely, the courageous people that came forward to say that Westall is something they can't explain, Mm. but they cannot get out of their lives. And sometimes I talk to witnesses, we both do, that might have experienced something for less than a minute, but 30, 40 years later they are still troubled Mm. by what they experienced. Now, that's not an hallucination. That is not a drunken moment in life. That is not a drug-affected moment in Mm. life. That is something that has pierced the heart of the human condition when based in a reductionistic society that says that that cannot exist. So I think it's really important that we step back and take a good look at ourselves before we start judging others with what could be just purely sensationalism and exploitation for the media. Can we quickly play before we say goodbye to this extraordinary gentleman that I want to dive I want to dive through the camera and hug. <laughs> and he's probably going, Thank God he can't do that. Because Fine. come, 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 come. I just feel so emotionally attached to you. And you are just fantastically humble and, and generous with your time. Let's play the trailer for Rosie's Doco, and we will put a link up. That's it there. Yeah. Let's okay. just do that. The 6th of April, 1966, started just like any other day in the city of Melbourne. 
Then something very strange appeared in the sky above the suburb of Westall. It hasn't been explained to this day. This boy come running in and say, Mr Greenwood, Mr Greenwood, there's these things in the sky, there's these things in the sky. We looked up and we just saw this saucer type thing taking off. It wasn't a plane, it wasn't a balloon, it was nothing like that. A lot of the kids took off towards where it seemed to go. All the students were just running all over the place, uh, hysterical. Westall High School as a, as a teaching situation ceased. My girlfriend and I sat on the fence, climbed the fence, the school boundary, and we were crying, thinking it was the end of the world. Isn't that? And Rosie Jones is such a gifted filmmaker, and Absolutely. I just reflect on my time with Rosie and mm. how she how she handled me, how she managed to extract not a performance, but how mm. she managed to extract a uh, information from me, and how she got me to move through the landscape and to interact with the witnesses. Mm. And the only reason I know anything about the Westall story. And this is something that I didn't discover until years and years into my research is because one day an 11 year old boy who'd been at Westall State School that day went home and told his mum and dad who lived in Westall about what he had seen. And some years later, that mum and dad became friends with a lady that I ended up boarding with when I first moved down from Shepparton to Melbourne as a university student, a lady who had been an infant welfare nurse in that part of Melbourne for a thousand years. Everybody knew her. She knew all the babies, all the mums, all the dads. She'd wow. been given the award of the citizen of the year for the city of Waverley, the local government area in which she lived. And I boarded with her as some other students had done over the years. And while I was going to university. And she told me the story about what had happened at Westall. And she knew that because that little boy's mum and dad were friends of hers and had shared that with her. Right. Years later, I eventually stumbled upon the information that one of the hundreds of witnesses in my list that I've been in contact with was that little boy and that he had this connection with my friend, the lady I had lived with for several years and I never knew of the connection. Wow. I didn't know. I knew his mum and dad. I mm -hmm. knew the lady who was my friend. And then he said to me, Shane, and did you ever hear about what Alva, Alva was my friend I boarded with, did you ever hear about Alva's mum's story, what she saw at the time? Because apparently around the same time in the suburb of Glen Waverley, just up the road from Westall, um, my friend's mum, who was a very straight-laced, strict, conservative, Christian, Protestant Christian lady, stared out the window in her kitchen one day. And at the back of the house, over the backyard, uh, behind the back fence, were these high-tension power lines, pylons, mm -hmm. which, of course, were part of the network that connected with the ones in the grounds of the schools at Westall. And she saw sitting there in midair a floating flying saucer and inside two beings oh. humanoid 
type beings, yep. but they weren't human beings staring out, looking at her. And I have absolutely no recollection of my friend Elva ever mentioning that to me, but I presume Elva's mother mentioned it to her. Mm -hmm. And I had to sort of sit back in my chair and wonder what on earth was the connection then with what happened at Westall? Because it was around the same time, right. literally just up the road. What do you make of all these pieces of the puzzle and all these different connections that you make around them? It's fascinating. And, it is. And it's been it a real blessing in my life to stumble across this story and to be welcomed into the lives and hearts of so many of the people who were there and people like yourselves who are connected with this phenomena in different ways as well and are interested in the story too. So mm -hmm. I thank you very much. Well, we can't thank, thank you. you enough. And I believe at the end of the day, if we can actually turn part of the anomalous world to be that God particle, that God particle directed you to be the custodian of this valuable information because you would not exploit it and you would take care of the eyewitnesses mm -hmm. and make sure that their credibility and their story remained intact. Yeah. How rare it is for an independent researcher financed by their own hand with a family to raise and a job to do apart from this mm. is able to put together such an astounding work this is. And I know you've spoken that one day there will be a book out there. That book needs to be out there. I know that down in the Grange that there is a flying saucer shaped into a play set down there. I believe there should be some statues, especially of the young ladies that were tenacious and spoke to the meter and have held strong. But there should be a statue dedicated to you and Rosie down there as Absolutely. well. Yeah. Because you are just brilliant, astounding people. And all we can do is sit back in awe at your research and realise that all of us need to raise our game mm. and take into consideration what great work you have done. We just admire it deeply. And we also thank you for coming on Untold Radio because if anyone were to look at the analytics <laughs> around you in the media, yeah. it's thousands, yeah. hundreds of thousands approaching millions and when you look at the analytics of down south anomalies for the untold radio network it's in the hundreds <laughs> so really it's an astounding act of generosity to give us your incredible time today shana and you know i just want to ask you at the end there you know the wife and i have noticed that in this whole range of phenomena you could put under the umbrella of anomalous mm you know, going even over the notion of the Yowie sightings and the UFO sightings. And you spoke very interestingly before about these objects at Westall jumping. And we, we, we've got a lot of film in our building. We can analyse old UFO footage. And we notice, you know, we're looking at 18, 24 frames a second. You've always got what seems to be balls of light attached to these solid objects. Mm. And those balls of light will appear maybe one or two frames and then disappear. And, then disappear. and eight frames later, they're there within a, a fraction of a second, mm. a nanosecond. Mm. So we've always thought that there seems to be an incredible consistency over the range of anomalous phenomena that in a way links all these all things together. Yeah. And one of the things that links them together strongly 
is that a lot of people feel that there is some conscious relationship. They sight a min-min light and they feel that that min-min light is actually there for them. Mm. People see an object in the midst of the CBD, no one else is looking up. They seem to feel that that object is doing something for them. Mm -hmm. And I've always extrapolated if I was going to go towards a hypothesis, I think the word alien or even coming in from another star system, we could be completely wrong. If it has that personal connection to us, is it us? Is it part of us? How can it relate to us so personally and so profoundly if it doesn't understand us? And it seems to understand us Mm. a lot more than we understand it. Or ourselves. I often like to say to people, in a way, because there are so many explanations for the anomalous, Mm. and we all have our interpretations based on how we were raised and the cultures we grew up in and what we've studied and all those sorts of things. But, um, you know, people talk about the supernatural and the paranormal, but there's really only the natural and the Mm. normal. And it all has to be connected. And it's just super or para because we don't yet have a handle on it. But it's all part of the one fabric that we call Mm -hmm. the universe or life or time. And it's interesting that uh, issue of consciousness that you raised because just literally two weeks ago, I was talking to a woman who's now in her 60s working on a mine site in Western Australia, driving one of those big mining dump trucks. But uh, in the 1960s, she was a nine-year-old girl standing on the sports ground at a primary school in Melbourne, not Westall, but another one. And she had this extraordinary UFO sighting, an object that was only about 170 metres away. She described as being like two or three times the size of her dump truck that she drives. And it was hanging in midair, silent. And there were lots of kids there and teachers because it was recess time. They were watching it in broad daylight. And she said, Shane, I don't know why, I don't know why, but then and now still I had the sense that it was watching me and watching us and that it was conscious that we were there and that it was almost showing itself to us. I don't know why. Why Mm. did it pick us? But it was showing itself to us for a reason. Right. And I wonder, I don't know, of course, I don't have the answers. I only have the questions, but I wonder if something similar was happening at Westall. I just wonder. And I think it's the wondering Mm. that we have to do. That's what's the important thing. It's the wondering, it's the questioning, and not so much getting hooked on the answers, although Mm -hmm. the answers are important. I want answers as much as anybody, but it's that sense of wonder and that sense of staying open to what could be because maybe none of us really know what it is that we're looking at. It's something still beyond us, mm. but it has to be, I think, connected to us because we're all connected. Mm. We're all part of the same world, the same universe. There has to be at some level a connection. Yes. 
Of course That's they just does. my opinion, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a wonderful opinion and we should we've all got our own reality tunnel as you said we've all got our own biases. Mm -hmm. The last thing we need to be doing is throwing shade on other people unless they're harming other people with aspects of sensationalism, but we should all stand back from this phenomena and be in awe of it. And as a teacher, as a parent you'd be really aware that it's not a matter of coming up with an answer. It's a matter of triggering the human imagination mm. and making that imagination grow and making you realize that we are in a profoundly beautiful, extraordinary situation. And if we have support and love, that we can't be any luckier than what we are right in this moment. Absolutely. And it is an absolutely profound privilege to say thank you for your time today and much love and respect to you. If you're ever in Sydney, come and see the dysfunction of what people call <laughs> hoarders buried alive, and that is my wife and I in the our archives. archives. <laughs> the door will be always open for you. If there's any research we can help you with, I doubt it. I think you're just a remarkable researcher. But let me say at the end, I hinted to you in an email that possibly we have another witness. And two weeks ago, we got a couple of yeah. brilliant brothers that are directors yeah. of a movie I get a feeling you could really enjoy called <laughs> Late Night with the Devil, which is a film based on satirizing the late night yeah. TV hosts like Don Lane mm -hmm. and all those moments with um, Doris Stokes and all those oh, bits and Doris pieces. Yes. Yeah. But their father actually lived right near Moorabbin. Mm. And even though he's in his 80s and one of the sons is quite sceptical and mm -hmm. goes, Dad, you're near an airport, you're bound to see odd things, mm -hmm. he has some stories. Yes. So when we get a chance, and we didn't get a chance, we would have loved to have thrown him right into the thick of things with this. Um, but when we get a chance. Oh, we will interview him. We and, will interview yeah. him and we will make sure that we get that information into your hands. Whether it's relevant or not, mm. it's just another great another way. And you know That's what? It. Like yourself, I really enjoy talking to people. I love being in their company. And every time I talk to certain individuals, I'm inspired. It gives my life a lot more depth and warmth. Yeah. And you have brought us so much of that today. So thank you for being part of Untold Radio's Down South Anomalies. Thank you, Jamie. And thank you, Aspasia. Sending Pleasure. love back to you as well. Thank you. And I better okay. go and see what my school-aged children are doing now. Yes. Can you just quickly show Shane what you were knitting there? Because it always gets me down when you're distracted. I'm but I want to see what you what you completed in that time I, of the interview. I'm just making And is it um, finished? Hey, well, no, I'm just but I'm making little. Things. You know she knits when she DJs. And she DJs the final. Wow. I is that a doily? It's a square. I'm making a, uh, a, a cot cover. Fantastic. Yeah. There need right. to be more knitters in the world. Absolutely. And sheep as well, of course. <laughs> yeah, All right. well. We yeah. love you deeply. Thank you for <laughs> Thank your time. Thank you, Shane. Thank yeah. you. Pleasure. And Thank you. I Take will, care. I will let you know when this is on. Lovely. Okay. Via, yeah. yeah. And uh, Sounds great. Thank you so much. And we have really you got a website it. for people to go to? Maybe that's quickly what we need to do. So any more eyewitnesses. If anybody wants to contact yeah. you about. So anyone anything? can contact me. Yeah, through the uh -huh. Westall Incident Flying Saucer, Westall Flying Saucer Incident Facebook page. Okay. So it's on Facebook. I'm on Facebook. 
but people can contact me through that page. Okay. And there's a whole stack of information there in terms of links, videos, articles, photos, maps, oh, all related to the Westall story. Lots of posts from me, but yeah. other people as well, including posts from people who were there at Westall. So that's great. the best way, I think. That's more information okay. that they can look at. Okay, let's hope yep. that young man hasn't torn the lounge to shreds. All right, we'll speak <laughs> to you very soon and Thank take you. good care. Maybe just take Shane out. We need to play Satsquan. Uh, oh, uh, right, Satsquan, okay. what All am right. I saying? We're, How do I pronounce that? that? Dis- uh, yeah, which one is it? that there, just darling. We've got that coming up on the 26th. Oh, Sus- on... the Sasquatch. Yeah. yeah. All right, Thank Shane, you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Take we will good speak care. soon again. Bless Thank you. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. Okay. All right. Where am I? That one there? Yeah. Now, we have to make sure that people are aware to go online that this Mm -hmm. is not just you're there in the States checking this out, but you can actually go online and experience the entire... It's an amazing documentary. And I'm pronouncing that wrong. I'm turning into Sasquatch Pawns. Let's go with it. Let's just go. Hit it. All right. We'll be back next week. No, no, no. We'll come back after it. God. I've got to go and pick up my grandson. Are you ready to uncover the mysteries of Bigfoot? Join us for SquatchCon Idaho 2023. This year, we're bringing the magic directly to your screen or join us in person. Witness the world premiere of the enhanced Paul Freeman Bigfoot footage. Doug Hycheck discovered a secret within this enhanced video you'll have to see to believe. Hear from an all-star panel of Bigfoot experts like Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum, Cliff Barockman, Brian King Sharp, and Michael Freeman. But that's not all. Get exclusive online bonuses such as Bigfoot-themed wallpapers, a Bigfoot coloring book, an interactive Bigfoot quiz, Squatch Nut Field Guide, get a copy of the Freeman Bigfoot Files ebook, and more. Whether you attend in person or watch it live online, you'll be part of an unforgettable experience. Don't miss out on this unique opportunity. Secure your spot today. Squatch Con Idaho 2023. Step into the unknown. Please excuse me there. I think we're a little tired after that interview and I was really wrecking it with Squatch Con. Okay. But it is so important. I think you've got one more week and you're yawning. Don't forget to have a look at this incredible Preston. And and Talking Weird has had Preston up numerous times. He's written so many great books. Yeah. I think actually Untold Radio had him up recently as well. He did drive in Flying Saucers. Yeah, I Really, that should be turned into a movie. It should be. You know, my name's Jay Katz. My beautiful wife, Aspasia, has knitted a doily whilst interviewing today the one and only from Westall 66. You killed me. You know what? I love you, but I also love our listeners and our watchers. Take good care. We'll be back next week with something... You know, with a bang, I think. We do. We bang every week. What a thing to say.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.